I think we were raised to believe that the American dream was real, that every generation so far had done better than their parents' generation. And of course, why wouldn't that be true for us? That will especially be true for us women, because women now have all these opportunities that our mothers and grandmothers didn't have. Um, and that has not been the case. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of RJ Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Men have defined the space of midlife crisis for decades. You know, the sporty cars, the affairs, etc. But what does a midlife crisis look like for women? And do Gen X women have a particular vulnerability? Ada Calhoun has used her uncanny ability to define a zeitgeist, along with countless interviews, research, and data to answer these questions. Culminating in her latest smart book, Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. This book is already named a book to watch for in January by the New York Times and one of the most anticipated books of 2020 by Oprah Magazine. Her essays tend to go viral and win awards, including her latest essay turned best-selling book titled Wedding Toasts I'll Never Give. I am delighted to welcome Ada Calhoun to talk about how seemingly having it all can, in fact, make you feel miserable. Ada, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thanks for having me here. So everyone seems to know the definition of a baby boomer. Mm -hmm. I don't know that everybody knows the definition of Gen X versus mm -hmm. Gen Y versus the millennials. So who is Gen X? <laughs> So different people have different ideas of what constitutes Generation X. Um, the one that I went with is Pew Research Center's definition, which means you're born between 1965 and 1980. And this, so this group, in some ways, you talk about a 1980 perfume commercial. <laughs> the famous Anjali ad. Yes, notorious. Which I think is in all our heads. Mm -hmm. But describe the ad and how that sort of set the landscape for the Gen X generation. Yeah. So um, so a lot of women of this generation can sing this, uh, this song verbatim, but it's basically a, a very sultry woman. And she says, I can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan and never let you forget you're a man. And she changes outfits throughout this, <laughs> this 24 hours that her perfume never fades. And she wears, you know, sort of jeans. And then she wears a sexy dress and, and a silk blouse. And she, um, she's able to do everything and beautifully. And I think all of us remember that ad. So the problem is that this created a set of expectations that you spend a lot of time talking about that as opposed to baby boomer women who knew it was going to be, you know, climbing a mountain, mm -hmm. Gen X women were led to believe by this commercial and others that well, you really could have it all. Yeah. No, and I think that we were told we we could do anything, we could be anything, even president. Um, and I think that that really translated into a lot of our brains as we can do anything, so we must do everything. Right. It's the must do everything. So you found yourself in what seemed like a pretty positive set of circumstances, yet 
Where did you find, what were your circumstances? Where did you start to think that maybe something was awry? And how did that then drive you mm-hmm. to thinking about this more broadly? Well, I was just having a really horrible summer, and I thought it was just me. Uh, I had had a bunch of freelance assignments all fall apart at the same moment. We had a bunch of credit card debt. Uh, my son was applying for um, for middle schools, and my stepson was applying for colleges. And, you know, again, it looked on the outside, it looked pretty good. Like mm. on Instagram, it looked pretty good. I've been married for 15 years. I had these two amazing kids. Um, you know, I had a, had a nice apartment. Um, and I just had the the worst feeling of dread and isolation. And I felt like a failure. I felt like my career was not where I wanted it. And mm. what did I do wrong? How did I get to this place? How did I have credit card debt? You know, what kind of a dope was I that I put – put our vacation on a credit card, assuming that these three checks were going to come in. And then what was I going to do now that they hadn't? Um, and I kept waking up in the middle of the night. I felt old. <laughs> I felt mm. like I gained weight. Like I just, I felt physically lousy and nothing helped. I just, I tried all the things that they say to try. And I, you know, drank walked in nature, alcohol, walked in nature, <laughs> so much walking in nature, so much taking the stairs. Um, Meditating. And, oh, I tried all the things. Yeah. Yeah. I did the, the podcast and my husband came into the room at one point and said, oh, are you a podcast? person now. <laughs> um, and I'm like, yep, that's that's what's going on. So, um, and the self-help books and all of it and nothing was helping. And, you know, by by some miracle, I got a call right in the depths of my despair from an editor that I'd known for a while at um, Oprah Magazine, Oprah.com. And she said, you know, a lot of women I know are having a hard time in midlife. Can you write a story for us about it? And I thought, oh, it's not, it's not a trend. This isn't, this is just me and you, I guess, you know, and your two friends and that's all. So, you know, but I do need some work at the moment. So yes, of course, I'd be delighted to look into our generation. And the more I looked into it, the more I just saw one thing after another that pointed to just really hard, a really hard climb for us throughout our lives and then especially in midlife. Um, and it, I realized that I wasn't talking about it. I wasn't even aware of it. And I thought a lot of other women maybe weren't aware of it too. And so that story went really viral and a lot of women said they felt seen and also that it was it put a name to something that they had been feeling and, and that I guess I had been feeling in that summer of, of like something is wrong. What is it? And and as you describe it, I mean, you you spoke to how many women in the process of doing Couple the book? hundred. And what did you find across the board among these women that was common, whether in some cases they were 40 years old and unmarried without kids, and in some cases they seemed to have it all? Yeah. Well, I think it was that that piece of it was the expectations of our generation, this sense that their mothers very, very well-meaningly had said things like, don't be a nurse, be a doctor, be be more, be more than I was, um, and do more. And, and that if they hadn't been able to pull that off, which of course is very difficult, it's hard to be a doctor and have three kids mm-hmm. and also, by the way, usually take care of aging parents at the same time and um, try to contribute in the community and all these other things that I, I've i seen so many Gen X women trying to do, doing it all at once. It's very hard and they all felt like, why can't why can't I do this? What's wrong with me? Why have I, why don't I have the, the, the special Anjali magic um, that would let me do these things and, and feel good about it? So, Ada, you have a lot of really interesting data in the book. And so I want to take a few minutes and talk about that before um, we go on for how life's been defined. Mm -hmm. So one is to talk about the wage gap. 
um, there was a statistic that you had here, which didn't really surprise me, except with a juxtaposition to something else. And that statistic was, in 1950, 12% of women with children worked. That's not really surprising. Mm -hmm. In 1990, 76% of women with children worked. Also not that surprising. But you also talk about a 2015 Gallup poll that indicated that 56% of mothers would prefer to stay home. So that's another data point. General general downward mobility, um, what it looks like to try to get back in the workforce, Mm -hmm. suicide rates, Mm -hmm. and um, women's well-being, and just money in general. So tell us about the data that you found and how that supported everything that you were hearing qualitatively. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what I went out to try to find was what what factors could be at work in these women's lives that were leading them to, to feel miserable. Um, and one number after another really pointed in the same direction, which was it is extremely hard to do all the things that we're trying to do. We have very little support, and we're just trying to do – we're trying to do so much with so little help. Mm. Um, so, like, the downward mobility, I think, is a big part of it. Um, I think we were raised to believe that the American dream was real, that every generation so far had done better than their parents' generation. And, of course, why wouldn't that be true for us? That will especially be true for us women because women now have all these opportunities that our mothers and grandmothers didn't have. Um, and that has not been the case. So another number was, I think it was one in four women will out-earn their fathers in this generation. And I thought, you know, that is that is really telling, this idea that, that, uh, that three in four women went into this thinking, I'm going to do so much better than my parents, and and they're not. And are the men doing better than their parents? Because I don't think they are either, but not too <laughs> Not as... as bad. I think it's something like 40% of men in this generation will out earn, and then it's 25% of women. Right. Yeah. And but, but talk about these levels of unhappiness or happiness and the suicide rate information that you came across. Yeah, I was pretty shocked by that. I by, was too. Yeah, that, that it's something like the top one of the top 5 causes I think of death yeah. among women our age is suicide and while I was working on the book there were a lot of of high profile uh women were committing suicide. Like Kate Spade. Kate Spade was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, that was while I was doing the book and you think like from the outside again there's this contrast of like looks it looks great, everything looks great and then inside what's going on? Why are why are these women so unhappy and and I do think it has a lot to do with this this lack of support. So there's two themes that I took away from the book. One was the set of expectations. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm a baby boomer. Our expectation was that maybe we would have a career and maybe we could do well, but I don't think it felt as definite. Mm-hmm. Where if you didn't do it, you failed. Where for your generation, it seemed like you ought to be able to get it all done. Well, and I have a, a good friend who's a baby boomer who said something very similar to me. She said that, and she she was very successful. She became an editor in chief. She made a bunch of money. She um she had a great place in the city. She she was really 
happy and thriving. And she said that for her, everything she achieved felt like such a win. Everyone was surprised. Her parents and her her peers were like, wow, look at you go. It's amazing. And she felt so proud. And then she said it's like our generation invented stress because she has daughters. And um, she said her daughters did at least as as much as she did and didn't feel it. They felt they felt like they'd failed. Um, so I think the expectations play such a huge part in how how happy you are with what you achieve. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I only have one. I have one child. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say I only have one child. <laughs> I have one child, and I had him in in my forties, which was not that unusual because I had a career first. Right. But I do often think, lucky I had a boy mm. because I would have been a demon about my expectations of a girl. Uh-huh. And where I figured he was a guy, he'll do fine. You know, the world <laughs> like likes men, uh-huh. so he'll he'll do okay. And it is interesting. I wonder how many women that you met with felt like some of that pressure came from their own mothers. It did and I think again they didn't they didn't think that their mothers were wrong to tell them the things that they said. They really felt like it came from the right place. But then when they failed, if they failed, they felt like they'd let down not only themselves, not only like womankind, but their moms, that they that they had been trying to live these dreams their mothers or grandmothers weren't able to live and that there was a lot of shame around not achieving that. And I know for for me, my mother uh she was an actress, she was very independent. And she would say these things to me when I was a little girl, like, always make your own money. No mm. one else is ever going to take care of you. And it got it got in me. And I, and I found that in middle age, if I'm not making a lot of money, I don't only feel broke. I feel doomed. I feel like mm. no one's going to help you. This is really, really big high stakes. And did you, A, to find a difference or was that a data point that you looked at? Because as I'm listening to you, it makes me wonder, did – Daughters of at-home moms operate differently in terms of their expectations from daughters of women who were working. Because I've heard from both kinds, both experiences Mm -hmm. where women who saw their moms at home, they seemed unhappy, undeveloped, or maybe, maybe. And women who... um, had moms who were working said, oh, my God, they seem exhausted all the time. I don't I don't even know why they're doing it. Yeah. So did you see the daughters of the respective moms operate differently? What I heard from a lot of women was that regardless of what their mothers told them, they felt like s- society was telling them to to achieve, to do more. Um, and, and, you know, and it wasn't just the Anjali ad, it was, it was schools. And I think title nine played a part in that where there was this sense that you, you now can do all the things and look. You could play sports, you could be in the National Honor Society, go to an elite. And I, and I think women of our generation really took that to heart. And you see the education rates of Generation X women, they're through the roof. Um, and, and the, the level of achievement is really, it's remarkable. But it doesn't resonate. Well, it doesn't – I think it doesn't feel like enough for a lot of women. Mm. Um, and I think also the sense that that doing that much hard work for that long uh, should result in security or financial well-being. And it just – it doesn't always these days. So do you think that women are supporting each other? Do you think you're – let me ask it this way. It seems to me that your book and your original essay has opened a floodgate 
of conversation, providing comfort to a lot of women who thought they were alone in feeling ashamed of their accomplishments or not enjoying what they did achieve. But, you know, I have always found women to be so supportive to each other. I'm surprised it didn't come up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think what I heard was that a lot of women felt alone in this. I think, first of all, everyone's just so tired. Mm-hmm. I think they're just working such long hours at, at home and in the workplace and in the community that the idea that they were then going to take some time out and really sit down with their best friend um, over tea and pour out their hearts about their credit card debt and their sexless marriage and you know their frustration with their boss and these other stressors, um, I, I think for a lot of women, they're just – there wasn't – there wasn't time in the day. And I've been extremely gratified to hear that this book has been a conversation starter for a lot of women who then do read the book and call up their friend and say, read this book, and then we'll discuss it. And it's it's given, I think, a lot of women a way in to those conversations. Um, and I'm really, really happy about that. So you think it was more about women not having the time for those conversations than a inability or an unwillingness to share the information? Which you think was the biggest driver? I mean, I think there was a lot of shame. I think I'll go with shame as number one for the reasons why I think it's hard for women to really open up, even with friends, about some of these topics. Because I do think social media has reinforced this idea that everyone else is doing better and everyone else has it figured out. And if you don't, what's wrong with you? Um, And a lot of shrinks I spoke with uh, for this book said that in their patients, they see this real tendency to compare their own insides with other people's outsides and mm. to look and see and say, oh, look, their their kids are all Olympic gymnasts and their husband's like handsome and, and fun and look at their beautiful home. And um, clearly they have it figured out. I don't have it figured out. I'm not about to go to that woman and say, you know, look at all my problems. Uh, so I, I think I think shame's really kept kept a lid on these conversations. Well, my friend Miriam Sants, who lives in Portland, Oregon, says that comparing your inside self to everybody's outside self, you will always lose. Always. I think that's right. And one of the things that I find as a baby boomer woman that is important for me to do is to like speak truth. Mm -hmm. And somebody might look at you or look at me and say, wow, you've got it all going on. And you got to go, no, time out. (laughs) I hardly have it all going on. You probably hardly have it all Mm -hmm. going on. But if we don't do that, we can't even celebrate the successes that we do have. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think it's really important when we talk to younger people, too. Whenever I teach, I make a point of getting really into how much money stories pay, you know, who, which, which places are good to work for, um, and, and really being upfront about the struggle and, uh, and not just saying, oh, you can do anything. It'll be great. So do you think that it is um, wise, given the role of social media, to either be more transparent on social media or stay off of it. Because here, here's a little bit of what comes into my head. I read this thing years ago about if people wrote honest Christmas <laughs> letters, they would say, you know, dear mm-hmm. friends, I'm delighted Joe's like out of rehab. <laughs> you know, Steve's recovered from his heart attack. We figured out a way to deal with our credit card debt, and uh-huh. my 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 daughter didn't get into college. Mm-hmm. You know, blah blah blah. Right. So, which do you think? How do you advise people about how they ought to interface with social media? 
It's, it's a question I'm still trying to figure out because I do find that it's very hard in that format to be honest and not sound like something you don't mean. I, I feel like if people I know who go on there and complain a lot, for example, it sounds like a gimme for, for you know, the little sad faces and the tears. And yeah. The, you can do it. It's going to be fine. And to me, I don't know if that's any more genuine in conversation than if you're saying, look, we won the basketball game. Look how great it is. And then you get the happy faces. I, yeah. It all feels a little a little fake to me and, and, a, and a little easy. Um, so I do tend to want to get offline a lot more. I do encourage women to get together in person to start clubs. I started a club after my, doing my research for this book and it's changed my life. I think it's really valuable to not to not just talk on the internet. Uh, well, and to that point, at one point, I interviewed Sherry T uh, Cheryl uh, Turkle, who's oh, up yeah. at Harvard, and she's written sure. books on the impact of social media. One of the things that she's saying she's noticing in millennials is they'll be at the same dinner table, and they'll be subtexting, meaning, <laughs> you know, there's five of us, and they might be texting one other person, right. and, and they're not even looking at each mm -hmm. other. Now, I don't think that's true of Gen X women. But tell us about your Sob Sisters group. Oh, it's so – it's changed my life. It's really wonderful. So I, I had a couple of close women friends who are also writers, and we were all in the throes of writing our books. Uh, this was a couple of years ago. And we realized we were meeting at bars and hanging out and talking, and we thought, like, oh, you know what? If, and helping each other so much, like strategizing agents and editors and all this stuff. And then we realized, like, oh, you know, we should get more women here because we can maybe learn more from them and also help more people. And so we just started doing this thing once a month at, at a bar. And I think the first one, we thought there'd be like 10 women and like 50 showed up. And some people took the train in from out of town. And we realized like, oh, people people want this. This is something that we really need on some level. And And it wasn't merely like they wanted to vent once. They wanted to be engaged in the conversation. There needed there, there yeah. didn't need to be a fancy answer. Right. No, I think it was just about getting in the room together and and having real conversations and you know and you, you you when you talk honestly you realize how the things that you're trying to figure out a lot of other people might have answers to. So, you know, someone was saying, oh, "I got this idea for this book and like I don't know how it's going to work." And someone else said, "Oh, have you thought about this and no, you should talk to my editor because they might like this. And you really can you can help each other when you know yeah. what's going on. And you know, it was interesting because when I read that one of your sob sisters, one of your original sob sisters was Susanna Kahalen, yeah. I had interviewed her oh, and adored her book, adored yeah. her. But I can see how someone like Susanna, who's very upbeat and positive despite some complicated medical problems yeah. she had, might look like the perfect person. Yeah. Well, she is kind of the perfect person. She I, is. <laughs> but, um, I, I oh, love good. Her. I feel better. <laughs> she has. Um, she just had twins, though. So, so just to to out her a little bit, she just had these twin babies, and she was in the throes of finishing uh, edits on her book and fact checking on her book, and so she she had a really rough few months of of nonstop care and no sleep and mm. tons of work. Um, and meanwhile, running this uh, this women's group with me and um, and our other friend Karen Abbott, and it it was it was rough, but but she's yeah she's very upbeat she's and pretty she's a great extraordinary. Sport. She is extraordinary, but also she she needed to talk a lot, and yeah. and I think everybody does. Well, I do think my husband and I talk about this because he's classic male, where he's <laughs> thinking internally, and I'm classic female, where I think by talking, mm -hmm. and I do think that most of us as women 
are comforted by being able to say something out loud and not having somebody like fall fall off their chair uh-huh. in shock and saying, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, it's true. And it's very funny because the last book I wrote was about marriage. And I remember saying, like, I was really fighting with my husband. And I said to a close friend of mine, like, you know, do you ever just think about them dying. <laughs> and um, and she was quiet for a while. And I thought, oh, great. I really like, you know, stepped over the line here. And she was like, I really think about the widow part. I think and she, <laughs> like you'd find out who crushes on you. And you can like, <laughs> um, so it's, it can be, it can be very uh, affirming. There's a lot cathartic. of power in saying something out loud. There is. Now, so a pushback on all of this could be, you know, hashtag first world problems. Yes. And one of the women I interviewed was Lori Gottlieb, uh-huh. who wrote, um, maybe you should talk to someone. And she talked about the hierarchy of grief. Mm-hmm. Like if she's seeing a patient who's dealing with not having enough friends, right. they don't lose out to the person who's having a hard time because they have cancer. Mm-hmm. Have you had any pushback saying, really, Are you? is this really what you want to be Dealing yeah. with? Yeah. I, I mean, I've definitely – I've heard it from men. I've heard it from other generations, and I've heard it from the women themselves. So a lot of these women I interviewed said up front, I don't consider it a crisis. Uh, you know, I have nothing to complain about. I'm extremely lucky. And they would minimize and minimize the same way they'd, they'd heard their mm. problems minimized for a long time. And then you would start to ask some questions, and and they would they would be coping with, uh, with just un – fathomable degrees of stress and obligation and responsibility. And anxiety. And anxiety and fear and shame. And you think like you're going through all this and you're you're telling yourself and everyone else that it's nothing and you don't deserve to feel that way. Like I, that's that's why I wrote the book basically was just to say, you know what? Like we've we've had all these movies about men's midlife crises and, oh, you're losing your hair. It's so sad for you. How horrible. And we have not really given women the time to say, actually, this is hard on us too. Here's how it's hard. Let's discuss it. It doesn't mean that it's harder than women had it, you know, during the the, the old West. It doesn't mean it's harder than women in India. It doesn't mean it's harder than anything else. But it's, you know, we get to, we get it's to speak real. our truth. It's, it's, it's real. It's what they're feeling. And, you know, it's funny. I just saw on Twitter this morning there was – there were all these women responding to um, to something related to the book and and saying, like, this is what I'm dealing with. This is, you know, I feel seen by this or whatever it was. And someone chimed in to say, like, it's not that big a deal or something. And someone responded to it and said, you're really going to look at, like, these dozens of women saying this is real for me and say it's not real. Like, how dare you? How, how can you do that? Yeah. And did you find Gen X women who didn't feel this way? I mean, you were seeking out women who had a common experience. Yes. but. Did you look for or find women who had a different experience? Yeah, I think this doesn't affect all women. I think mm. that I don't know what the percentage is. I mean, if I had to guess, like maybe it's maybe it's even 50-50. I don't know women who struggle or don't struggle. But I, I wanted to write this book for the women who are in it. And I think yeah. like anytime some, some woman tells me like, I'm not having a midlife crisis. I'm like, I'm so happy for you. That's wonderful. Don't buy the book. It's not for you. Yeah, although <laughs> although I thought that there were a couple of great conversations in the book, Ada, where they said – Oh, I'm not having a midlife. You know, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. True. But then as you talk to them even two more seconds, <laughs> you realize their life was like utterly unraveling. Oh, yeah. There was this one woman who said like, you know, oh, I don't know if I can help you. I'm not having a midlife crisis. I'm like, oh, yeah. How are things going? 
well, you know, I lost my job in the STEM field and there are no more jobs for me. So I had to move back home next to my mother. And then I had an aneurysm. And then my husband, just like, it was one thing after the other. And you're like, that is that is a huge amount for any human being to have to deal with in a year. And, yeah. and if you're not going to call it a midlife crisis, fine. But at least acknowledge this is not, it's not nothing. And isn't this notion of our, you know, what's referred to as the gig economy making this all worse? Because you talk quite a bit and I think quite convincingly about the role that money plays. And, you know, even you talk about your own experience where, you know, you finish a job and then you've got to hustle for the next mm-hmm. job. It's not, it's not as if you're working for Time Magazine right. and the assignments just flow and you have benefits. So that feels like that's aggravated the situation. I think so. And I think that is not that was not the case for our fathers and grandfathers in the workplace. They could go to work for, you know, Eastman Kodak uh, in their 20s and stay there until they got a gold watch at retirement. Um, or Eastman Kodak went broke. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what's happened to almost all of those those companies and um, workplaces where they ha- they offered some security and stability. That just doesn't exist for most of us at this point. And we do have to hustle and we do have to move from place to place over and over again and restart constantly. And it's like you see that we get to to middle management or upper management and then they do the thing called flattening the hierarchy mm. and those jobs go away. And I just talked to one woman after another who really thought she was going to be in a different place. She'd worked really hard. She'd done all the right things. So why was it that as soon as she got to the the place where she would have the corner office, there was no more corner office? Mm. And Ada, if you, you personally, mm-hmm. if you had enough money not to worry about money, do you think you'd be one of the 56% that'd want to stay home? Uh, well, I mean, I would be a lot less stressed out, I think, if I had enough money to, like, you know, pay for health insurance without having to worry about it and to um, – but, I mean, I think I would still work. I think most women would probably still work. I think they would do something creative or they would start their own business or they would do something. I think that what I heard in that number was that that having to go to work – you know, three weeks, six weeks after giving birth and work for someone else who who felt like they owed you nothing, um, where they weren't going to have your back at any mm. stage, where they maybe didn't even give you health insurance, that that is not a tenable situation for feeling secure or happy. Yeah. And, you know, what, what worries me is some of these conversations don't feel different than conversations I was involved in 50 years ago yeah. when I was in my 20s because... As I'm trying to listen to you and think about, okay, how does this get fixed, right? So you talk about the wage gap, and some of that's about women going home for a while, then coming back and, and coming back at lower lower yeah. levels, yeah. right? It's like your brain, like your brain was like vacuumed while you were gone or something. I mean, multiple women told me that they were fired on maternity leave, or that, or that they were that other people were promoted over them. Like they they took maternity leave um, and spent the six weeks or eight weeks home and came back and found out usually a man had been promoted ahead of them um, over and over again. And I, I just think, you know, if you're going to keep doing that to women, of course they're going to want to not work for you. So, so Ada, is the answer and, – and, you know, you might say all of the above, but is the answer in leveling um, the playing field by men – we as women insisting that men do their equal part? Is it in better parental leave policies? Is it about different corporate policies? Or is it about all of us changing our expectations of what – 
could happen? Because I am disturbed by the fact that more hasn't changed. You have a line in the book somewhere that says, yes, we're more equal, but it isn't easier. Yeah. No, I think it's like, is it fair? Yeah, it's definitely fair. But does that mean it's easier? It's definitely not easier. And the question of what to do, I think it's I think it's so systemic. I think, you know, the women went to work in these huge numbers, but nothing changed to help them. Nothing changed to make it possible to also do the caregiving. The men didn't start staying home in equal proportion. Um, and the way the economy has changed, it's very hard for anyone to stay home. I think it, most families do need two incomes at this stage um, to even even have a reasonable middle class life in most cities. So if you had a magic wand <laughs> and you could change just one thing that might mitigate this continuing, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Um, I mean, I I think it would be the – it would be – that there was more room for more different paths through adulthood. I think um, I think women feel really constrained because they can either work full time while trying to do all this caregiving um, and have a really rough time, or they can stay home for a while and then go back to work and have much much less money. Or uh, there there isn't a great path. For women right now, no one has no one has given them one, um, and I just I think having having more options, mm. real options with support, um, you know, and whether that's flexible flexible leave time or whether it's being able to work from home or um, or men staying home for a few years with the kids or just I think I just think more options. So here's what I'm going to challenge you to do, Ada, because I think not that you haven't already done enough, because I think <laughs> you've done so much for women to think about all this differently. But just like Lean In was started, hashtag Lean In, which I think exacerbated a problem about, okay, sweetheart, this is also your fault. Right. So let's think of a new hashtag that becomes a way of thinking of optionality mm. more than – more responsibility. Because Lean In to me – I thought said, I, you know what, cutie? I'd like you to take more responsibility for your success. Not that women shouldn't be responsible for their success. I'm not in any way suggesting yeah. that. So let's think of a new, I'm going to circle back with you to think of a new hashtag. You're going to be the head of a new movement. Sounds great. All right? <laughs> because th that needs to happen. Okay, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll we're we're going to yeah. work on this. So I want to uh, close with uh, two questions. One is um, maybe not such a silly question, but you play poker. I do play poker. Do you play poker with men and women or just women? Men and women. And what's the conversation at the poker table? It's mostly about poker. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it's, you know, about about our lives, them too. So like, you know, one of the guys, he's an actor. So he talks about parts he's got. And then he has a kid who's also an actor. So it's about the kids' parts. And, they, you know, who's gotten into college of the other people's kids and work. And is somebody's book selling? Or it's it's um, it's mostly literary people. And, and it's factual. Yeah, it's pretty factual. Yeah, I mean, it's there's there's a little bit of feeling, but mm -hmm. but yeah, it's funny. I was actually playing poker last month, and one of my f 
my friend, my friend Dan was dealing the cards and we play a lot of high-low poker, you know? And so you, we were playing high card uh, or high-low seven card stud. And so you see the, the cards come out and he was dealing and he was like, oh, looks like you're going high. Looks like you're going low. And he got to mine and I had like all junk. He was like, you're going a different way. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you like poker? Uh it's, I mean, it's just a, it's fun. It's, it's not for the money because I usually, um, more or less break even or win like twelve dollars. Um, but it's, you know, it's camaraderie. It's like a fun yeah. way to sit around and eat snacks and have your brain distracted. And it made me think about learning how to play poker when I read you played poker. It's really enjoyable, and we, and we play for very low stakes, and it's once a month ish, and, um, and there's a lot of eating and drinking involved. Uh, so, I highly recommend it. Maybe it'll be hashtag play poker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and here's what I'd like to um, – uh, well, no, I actually have another question, which might be uh, a little bit longer, and then we'll close. So I noticed that you had appeared on Megyn Kelly's show mm -hmm. uh, when it was there, and the bombshell movie came out now, and I've seen – have you seen it? Not yet. Oh, so I was curious. Is it great? What I you, want to see it. It, uh, it sounds like they did a really smart job of showing women in a non one dimensional way. Oh. But I was curious if you had seen it, if my impression is correct. I'm, I'm really curious to see it. I'll, I'll report back. Yeah. I'll be curious if Megyn Kelly goes to see it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'd be surprised. <laughs> so, one of the things that you closed with, which I loved, was a fable. Um, that had to do with uh, a woman calling an Uber. Oh, uh -huh. so, so I want you to share that fable with us and use that as a um, entry to how'd you feel at the end of interviewing all this women and doing all this research? Were you depressed or were you more hopeful? Sure. So the Uber story is a woman called an Uber and a, a car pulled up she got in the back and it was really filthy and she was like, oh, gosh, one more thing for me to do. And she starts taking all the trash and handing it to the driver um, in a really exasperated way. Um, and he's staring at her and she was like, I'm helping you. Like, look at, you know, oh, great. You're now you're going to stare at me. And then she looks out the window and she sees a woman standing there and she realizes, oh, this isn't her, her Uber. And then she sees the man and woman looking at each other and she's, oh, this is not an Uber at all. She just got in a random car and started handing a man his own trash from the back seat. Um, and anyway, she got out of the car and the woman was the man's wife and the, she explained what she'd done and the woman started laughing and then the man started laughing and then the three of them are just standing there on the sidewalk in the middle of the day, like just laughing about this ridiculous thing that had happened. And I love that story because I think we can react all different ways to situations and she could have been embarrassed or, you know, ashamed or the woman could have been jealous. Like, who is this woman in your car? Or the man could have been really mad at her. And instead, they just chose to like look at it as like this, this lovely human moment of of mistaken identity um and they all their days got better like all of them just they felt better at the end of that moment um and so i think i look i look for opportunities in my life now to, to have those experiences with other people in the real world where we all are just like this is what it is to to be human beings in this moment in time and did it mitigate your midlife crisis 
Yeah, I would say writing the book cured it. I mean, I really do feel like I'm on the other side of it now. It's not not to say that things aren't still incredibly difficult a lot of the time and things have gotten even worse in my life in a lot of ways because my my dad's got cancer, my parents' uh, home burned down, uh, you know, my grandmother just went into hospice yesterday. Like it's 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 been a lot. I'm doing high school applications for my son. Um it's it's still better because my expectations are lower mm. because I have the support of other women and other and I've built a support network for myself. Um, it's better because I learned about perimenopause and I you know I got a good doctor. It's I, I made all these changes in my life based on the research of, of um, involved in this book and it it really it fi- it fixed the crisis part. It, it didn't didn't fix the stressors, but it fixed that feeling of doom. Your reaction, you know, it's that classic saying of. Uh, that you can't control what's going to happen. You can only control how you will react to it. Yes. And I felt like this doing this book really steeled me in this way and prepared me in this way for for this, for the, the slings and arrows of midlife. Um, and now that they're continuing, I, I just, I feel a lot better. I, I do often think, and I started feeling this way like 10 or 15 years ago, that the difference I notice between people in general who are happy and people who are unhappy is expectations. Mm-hmm. I think it plays a huge part. And I'm I'm stunned that it plays – and it doesn't mean that the people with lower expectations are somehow lesser people. Mm-hmm. They are realistic about what makes them happy. Yeah. And they allow for the space of saying – this thing makes me happy. I don't need to be queen of the planet. Yeah. Um, and if you want to be queen of the planet, fine. Yeah. But that's going to come with its own set of stressors. I think I think you're right. And I think that applies to so many things. I think it applies to where we are career-wise. I think it applies to what we expect out of a marriage or out of our children mm. or out of our friends. I think coming into it and realizing everyone's human and that failure is part of being human um, really sets you up more for success and thinking I'm owed a lot and everybody should be perfect. Yeah. So we've been talking with Ada Calhoun, um, whose book just published uh, this week, uh, and the title is Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. And I would I would close with this, Ada. One of the things I love about books um, is that you get the opportunity to meet yourself in a new way mm-hmm. and maybe in a way that you never did before. And I think uh, that's what your book does, not just for Gen X women who are having a midlife crisis, but for other people to understand and sympathize or empathize with what's going on around them. I'm so glad to hear you say that because as a as a lifelong um, reader, I mean, I, I read a million books um, a year. And uh, for me, it's all about feeling less alone. And mm-hmm. whether you're reading something that was written 200 years ago or written this week, yeah. I just, I think it's about having that connection. And, um, and if I can do that for anybody, I'm really, really glad. Well, I want to hear back from you on the hashtag. Yes. <laughs> we can work on that. We we're can... going to work on that hashtag. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.